Hello, everyone. Welcome to an August 2023 episode of Pods for Docs. My name is Sinu, your host and friendly neurology registrar. I'm excited to welcome a new guest to the podcast, Dr. Naz Hernandez, who is a specialist registrar in care of the elderly and general medicine. I've also had the pleasure of working with her, and she's overall excellent. We're going to do a series of related big topics in her field, starting with a broad overview of dementia, then looking into the important topic of delirium and the increasingly important topic of frailty. Welcome, Dr. Naz. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me, Ben. Thanks so much for coming on. I thought we'd kick this off by discussing a typical case. We'll get your thoughts and then we'll go through the topic as a whole. Let's start with this. We have a 65-year-old male, retired accountant, who has been noted by his family to be more forgetful over the last couple of years. He has begun to make some minor errors when managing the household finances. Friends have commented that he is prone to telling the same stories numerous times and missing social meetups. Recently, on a golf course, he has been losing track of the score, which is unlike him. His wife tells you that he still drives, but she feels more comfortable to be in the car with him to help him navigate. He would find it difficult to navigate a route which is unfamiliar to him. He cooks Sunday rows every week and he enjoys reading the crossword with a good memory of past events. He scores 24 out of 30 in his MOCA, which stands for Montreal Cognitive Assessment, dropping marks for problem solving and memory recall. What do you think is the main concern of the family here? And what diagnoses come to your mind? So I think clearly this family has noticed that something's not right with their, their family member. And I'd be thinking about cognitive impairment and investigating that further. So we'd be thinking about dementia here and all the different types of it. I think you're spot on there. I'd certainly be worried about this gentleman developing a dementia, especially with the history that's given memory difficulties and this curious story of maybe having trouble with navigation. People call that topographical amnesia. So I think that segues very nicely into today's topic of dementia. And so let's take it from the start. Could you briefly introduce dementia to our audience? And why is this such an important topic? Dementia is a progressive decline in cognitive ability and or behavior of an individual. It's important to remember that it's not a normal part of aging. Dementia may cause changes in memory recall, executive functioning and personality. And, and it's to such a degree that typical daily activities of an individual, things like washing, cooking and dressing are affected. There are many different types of dementia and it's possible to have a mixed type. But the most common ones we see are Alzheimer's dementia, vascular dementia, Lewy body dementia or frontotemporal dementia. It's a really important diagnosis to make because we know that the incidence of it is increasing. There's lots of new emerging treatments that can help slow down the progression, especially when you diagnose them in the early stages. So there's lots of potential to help patients. So diagnosis is important. Well, this is certainly a topic that's dear to my heart. I do a lot of cognitive stuff, so I'm very excited to delve into this. Could you tell our listeners how common is dementia certainly in the United Kingdom, and who is it most likely to affect? There are just under 1 million people in the UK that are diagnosed and living with dementia. And for the over 65s, that's 1 in 14 people, about 7% of the population. I think 70% of people in, in care homes are diagnosed with dementia. There's many risk factors, and it's often the risk factor alongside the history of symptoms, which will guide you into which type of dementia it's most likely to be. For example, in vascular dementia, 
it's more commonly associated with a stepwise decline in memory alongside having cardiovascular risk factors. This is linked to the causes of atherosclerosis and chronic hyperperfusion of the brain, which lead to a loss and a dysfunction of neuronal tissue. So Alzheimer's dementia, by contrast, is the neuronal dysfunction that's caused by abnormal deposition of proteins called tau and amyloid. And these proteins form tangles and plaques in the brain tissue. So in reality, most cases of dementia will have a mixed pathology. However, it's really useful to think of the distinct disease categories that will come out in the exam and talk about these a bit more. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. We do know that a lot of these are quite mixed in pathology, but as you say, you know, we're also getting people ready for an exam and, and they will try to categorize these in the exam. And what was that other dementia that you mentioned as well? Dementia with Lewy bodies as well that we haven't yet mentioned. And it's commonly misdiagnosed, which I think is why it's less heard of. It is a condition that's considered to be on a spectrum with Parkinson's disease because in the pathology of the condition, Lewy bodies are present in the brains of both patients. But in Lewy body dementia, the, the distribution of the damage is different to that in Parkinson's disease. And suddenly the cognitive symptoms are much more prominent. So those are some sort of buckets of putting dementia into pathologies. Are there any common risk factors for dementia? There's a growing body of evidence that confirms that dementia is multifactorial. And depending on which dementia we're considering, there are important ones to tease out. So we know that genetic predisposition plays a large part alongside the environmental factors, which we're learning more and more about each day. Pollution, for example, is one of those big ones. And we know that nitrous oxide is a risk factor for developing Alzheimer's disease. There is a genetic predisposition in Alzheimer's dementia. For sporadic Alzheimer's disease, the main risk gene is APOE4. And this can increase the relative risk of getting dementia up to 12 times, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the person will definitely get Alzheimer's disease. In vascular dementia, cardiovascular risk factors are the main modifiable one, such as having healthy eating habits, stopping smoking and controlling your blood pressure. It's really interesting, the point you made about the genetic risk. I also understand that most people know about APOE4, especially more recently, because Chris Hemsworth, a celebrity that a lot of people know, has come out saying that he has that risk allele. And so, you know, suitably he's worried, but as you said, it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to get dementia. Yeah. So a question that always comes up is the term mild cognitive impairment. You know, it gets thrown around a lot. Sometimes we see it in the exam. Could you tell us what it means? So mild cognitive impairment is a term that is used to describe a reduction in cognitive ability a greater extent than you'd expect for someone's age, but it's not as severe as in dementia. We know that people with mild cognitive impairments are at an increased risk of perhaps developing dementia in the future, and it's important to inform them of that risk. Yeah, I think we were chatting about this before we started recording, and mild cognitive impairment or MCI is a bit of a nebulous term, but it is important that people know that it's out there and it can represent people who will go on to develop dementia. Mm. And and so going away from a nebulous term, could you tell us about the kinds of objective cognitive testing that could commonly be used and how do we use them to separate sort of normal individuals and people with mild dementia, for example? 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. A history can be quite confusing, especially from patients who may have problems with their memory. So that objective score, traditionally we've used the mini mental state exam, which is normally scored out of 30 points. However, in the UK, we've kind of moved more towards using the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, which is the MOCA, and that's also out of 30 points. And the neurologists do like to use the Addenbrooke's memory test quite a lot. That's the A3. It's scored out of 100 points. It's quite time-consuming to do, but very informative. And we know that a score less than 25 out of 30 for the MOCA and MMSC, or less than 82 out of 100 for the Addenbrooke's, would suggest there is some cognitive impairment. That's really useful. Thank you. I am very quick at doing the Adam Brooks test, though. Uh, yeah, <laughs> lots of practice. Okay. And, you know, finally, before we move on to some of the investigations, you talked about dementia as this umbrella term for different specific diseases. And I know this comes out of the exam. So could you just give our listeners a few tips to distinguish between the main ones? Yeah, definitely. So in an exam question, an Alzheimer's dementia case will often be progressive decline over years and possibly, probably including multiple domains such as memory recall, problem solving, and it definitely affects their activities of daily life. There's been a change in that. For vascular dementia, there'll probably be a more stepwise decline. And by that, I mean there's a sudden change from one day to the next. Then they describe a period of stability before the next step decline. And there may be some kind of trigger, a recent illness or event, and definitely they would mention cardiovascular risk factors such as smoking or being diabetic. For Lewy body dementia, this will usually present in the early days with fluctuating attentional and memory difficulties alongside hallucinations. Then we'll probably mention some features of Parkinsonism such as loss of balance, stiffness, stooped posture or pill rolling tremor. And then the other dementia we mentioned was frontotemporal dementia. So here there's more of a focus on the personality changes, disinhibition and memory recall tends to come later on in this condition. Fantastic. That's an excellent main point summary there. And so how do you approach giving the diagnosis or making the diagnosis of dementia? As I said, the history can be really difficult to get from a patient. So really important to involve family and get a collateral history because that's the objective view of how someone's been progressing to really get these points about how the declines occurred. Always, obviously, with the patient's consent, we want to involve family in that. And then we go on to getting radiological support in making the diagnosis. And I think in reality, we would start with a plain CT scan. This can pick up the common features such as hippocampal atrophy and Alzheimer's dementia, or if there's evidence of alternative causes such as stroke disease, small vessel changes, and they may point you more towards a vascular type dementia. What about other investigations like an MRI, or could you tell us a bit about the DAT scan? I think the gold standard for dementia would be the MRI scan, as it gives you a much more detailed view compared to a CT. And it can show you the shrinkage that I mentioned before. So in front of temporal dementia, you get the front of temporal lobes shrinking in early disease, whereas in Alzheimer's disease, you get the temporal lobe atrophy. A DAT scan is most useful in patients which may have some Parkinsonian features. And it's a nuclear scan that identifies a decline in dopaminergic neurons in the brain, and it can help kind of distinguish between Parkinson's and Lewy body dementia 
if you're in doubt. That's great. I always think of MRI and CT as really important structural information and the DAT scan gives us that extra bit of functional information about the dopamine uptake, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. And any other investigations that we consider? Yes, there's definitely a case for using lumbar puncture and examination of the cerebral spinal fluid. And we're looking for the presence of tau and amyloid protein that can help you diagnose your Alzheimer's dementia and offer early intervention if it's indicated. Generally in the UK, lumbar puncture is the last investigation to be performed. Although it is part of a standard workup in countries such as the USA and in parts of Europe too. Fantastic. So finally, let's move on to management, which I know is a real emerging field. What could you tell us about different treatment options or the general approach to treating dementia? We know that cognitive decline is exacerbated by common vitamin deficiencies or low thyroid, for example. So simple blood tests, we should replace low vitamin B12. We should start a thyroxine where it's indicated. And interestingly, we know that vitamin D plays a role in the cleaning up of Lewy bodies and, and protein tangles in the brain. So I think it's just sensible to have these things replete as the first step when you're managing a patient. We know that there's no cure for dementia. We know there are treatments that slow down progression and they provide a short-term improvement in the function. And that can be of great impact on someone's quality of life when they've got dementia. For many of these medications, catching it in the early stages is really important. One of the main group of medications we use in Alzheimer's dementia, for example, are acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, such as the nepazil. And they work by increasing the chemical acetylcholine in the brain. And that we know that they are effective in patients with Alzheimer's dementia, some mixed type dementias, and Lewy body dementia. They're not so useful for vascular dementia and mild cognitive impairment. They don't tend to have much impact. We do have medication called memantine. This is an NMDA receptor antagonist. It reduces the action of glutamate in the brain, essentially. And it can be used for the same group of dementias I just mentioned. It doesn't slow down progression of the condition, but it can help alleviate some of the symptoms, such as behavior changes, hallucinations, because it has a dampening effect. And so if you had a choice between using denepazil or memantine, which one would you go for? There's no real difference between denepazil and memantine. Denepazil is first line and it's most widely used. If the patient doesn't tolerate denepazil or if the disease is progressing very quickly, memantine can then come in as a second line. It's a really useful practical point. And is there anything you want to say on the new exciting drugs that are coming up oh, in the dementia field? Yeah, there's so many exciting new drugs and very expensive drugs as well, including denanumab an immunotherapy that's been shown to reduce the amount of amyloid formation in the brain. So the initial results are really promising. They show a slowing of the memory decline about 20% and a slowing of the decline in daily activities by about 40%. And none of these drugs come without their side effects. And the newer agents, we don't know what their long-term effects will be, so, but there are lots of new exciting developments coming and we need to watch this space. I agree. There are lots of these new, exciting drugs. And I suppose we should say that they are so new and exciting that they probably won't come up in the exam, but suddenly <laughs> the old goodies such as denepazil may feature. So perhaps best to focus on that. But at the same time, you know, we're all doctors, we all want to learn, and this is really good stuff. 
Fantastic. So any final takeaway messages for our listeners? Yeah, I think really familiarize yourself with the different types of dementia and think that history is really important. You're going to know from your question exactly which dementia they're talking about. In terms of investigation, your gold standard will be an MRI, and, but important to know about the range of tests available to you, such as the DAT scan. That's it. Thanks so much, Dr. Nas, for joining us. It was both illuminating and very well explained. And so really appreciate it. And for everyone else, please do go onto our website and check out our resources. And until the next podcast, take care.